You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Morning, friends. Morning. Good to see you guys. I like looking at you people every Sunday. I like you people. Back in the year 112 CE, or AD, there was a ruler in the Roman province of Bithynia. It's what we now know as modern-day Turkey. His name was Pliny, if you're looking for good boy names. Pliny. Keep that in mind. And Pliny had a simple job. Somebody said, mm, when I I thought about a boy named Pliny. Pliny had a simple job. It was to keep the Roman engine going. See, Pliny ruled at a time when the Roman Empire was dominating the world. Roman infrastructure and wealth and power and strength had just spread all throughout the ancient world. There are poets at this time who said that the Roman Empire ruled from the rising to the setting sun. As far as you could look, the Romans ruled. And they actually had uh, religious kind of components to this as well that upheld the power of the empire. It was state-sponsored religion back in the day, mandated worship of Roman gods. And so the religion kind of served as a foundation for the empire. In fact, this was evident in the currency that we've discovered that they used. You can actually see this on their coins. Their emperors, emperors like Tiberius, Augustus, Nero, they were referred to as the son of God. The emperors at that time were divine in some way. Religion served the purposes of the empire. So it was this holistic, powerful combination of politics and religion. But in the middle of Pliny's reign, amidst this incredibly impressive empire, he was faced with a dilemma. Because one day, a number of people were brought before him, and they represented a new pervasive movement. And on the surface, this movement didn't really seem to pose much of a threat. It arose out of a place called Galilee, and Galilee at that time was kind of the armpit of the empire. Nothing really culturally significant came out of Galilee. But this movement, it was particularly pesky. It spread like a disease all over the Roman Empire. And these people were driving Romans away from comprehensive Roman allegiance because they had the the audacity to call someone else the son of God. They refused to worship the Roman gods, and their primary allegiance wasn't to the emperor. Anybody know the name of this movement? Christianity. In one letter to his friend Trajan, another great boy name if you're thinking about it, right? Pliny and Trajan. Those would just be like powerful siblings. In one letter to his friend named Trajan, Pliny called this movement a superstitious contagion, like a disease. He said that it was dangerously spreading to villages all around the empire. But then when he looked at the Christians who were in front of him, he was like, this doesn't really add up because these people don't look like revolutionaries. They were poor. Many of them were uneducated, and they even had women leaders. Can you believe that? Women leaders? There's no way a movement like that gets off the ground. And so, after thinking much about it, Pliny figured the best move at this point was just to squash these Christians in front of them, have a power move to scare people off of this new ideology. And so he had these Christians killed. And he ordered that any other Christians in the province who were unwilling to recant their beliefs would also be killed. And that quickly became the norm across the whole empire. If you were found out as a Christian, you'd be killed. And certain emperors were particularly aggressive about this law. And yet, in spite of that persecution... In spite of Christianity's lack of any physical force or political power or social capital, Christians kept growing and growing and growing. 
It made no sense. They had no worldly power, and yet they expanded rapidly. They went from being non-existent in the year 10 CE or 10 AD to having more than 20 million adherents 300 years later in 310 CE. Many historians estimate that in 310, Christians made up about half of all Roman citizens. They expanded incredibly quickly. There's a historian named Kenneth Scott Latteret who writes about this. He's a historian from Yale who uh, extensively has researched this period of time in history. He said, never in so short a time has any other set of ideas, religious, political, or economic, without aid of physical force or of social or cultural prestige, achieved so commanding a position in such an important culture. It's never happened. It's remarkable. And so that raises a pertinent question for us. How did this movement, which started with just a couple hundred followers of a no-name carpenter from a place called Nazareth, how did that movement grow so rapidly? How did Christians so comprehensively transform the world around them? And as it turns out, we actually don't have to do a ton of digging to answer those questions because we learn about the early church in these pages. We actually have record of what made them so transformative. And when we read about them, the answer becomes quite clear. Christians changed the world because they were enticingly different. They changed the world because they were enticingly different. They spoke of a sort of life and reality that was different than anything else the world had ever seen. This transformative divinity And they lived out that transformative divinity in their midst. They did this so compellingly that millions of people over the next couple hundred years were willing to risk their lives for this reality. We're continuing in a teaching series here at Midtown called The Transformed Life. And we're looking at a few of the central pillars of the Christian faith and how each of these pillars transform not just our lives, but the world around us. And each of these pillars are broken down into these categories, becoming like Jesus, belonging to community, and blessing the world. First three weeks, we talked about things like scripture, prayer, disciplines, becoming like Jesus. And then last week, Gail did an amazing job kicking off this second section, belonging to community. And she unpacked the church, what the church really means, the messy and magnificent nature of the church. And in the text we explore today, we're going to examine characteristics of that church. What is it that made this church so enticingly different? What characteristics enabled them to transform the world around them. Because when we learn those things, we learn about well, what it might mean for us today. So friends, if you have a Bible, turn it with me to the book of Acts. This is the fifth book in your New Testament, if you're flipping there. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 40. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. The words are going to be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there. Also, if you don't have a Bible, let me know. We'll give you one for free. We're all about free books at Midtown. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 40. And he, this is Peter speaking, and he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God 
and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The beginning of this passage here that we read together is actually the end of one of the first ever sermons. The apostle Peter, who was one of the original 12 disciples that Jesus called to him, had just finished powerfully recounting this redemptive and restorative story of Jesus to the people. This was to a massive crowd. This was actually happening during one of the largest feasts of the year in first century Judaism called Pentecost. Pilgrims from the Jewish faith had traveled all around and come to Jerusalem for this festival. Peter preaches this sermon, and what's the result? What happens here? 3,000 people come to faith. 3,000, that's incredible. It's a logistical nightmare, but it's incredible, right? 3,000 people. And Luke, the author of the book of Acts here, he wants us to see that immediately after this sermon, there's a new community that gets formed. And I don't want to overlook that. He preaches a sermon, and it doesn't stay within itself. It actually creates a new transformed people. That's what sermons do. That's what all of this is about, you guys. We kind of miss that sometimes in our highly consumeristic culture because we'll watch somebody preach on YouTube or we'll look up a nice sermon to make us feel good. We forget that sermons are supposed to spark a new community. That's the whole point. As soon as Peter preaches this message, people create a new sort of community and they start to live in that new sort of community differently. That's what sermons do. And he describes this new community and in his description, we can see exactly what made it enticingly different from the rest of the world around them. First thing that was enticingly different about this community is the way that they fellowshiped, their fellowship together. See, when Peter's preaching this, he's doing so to a radically diverse group. This Pentecost festival had pilgrims all over the place, different ethnic backgrounds, different uh, cultural backgrounds, different linguistic backgrounds, different genders. And all of those people come together after the message, and the text says that they devote themselves to one another. That's what verse 42 says. And that word devote, it comes up all across the Bible in a variety of ways. And oftentimes, including its usage here, it's talking about giving something away. That's what devote means here. And that's actually similar to how we use it in English, right? When you're devoted to something, you give away your time, your energy. You set that thing aside as particularly noteworthy or special in your life. In fact, some of your Bible versions might actually translate it, just gave themselves away. That's what this word is meaning in 42. So this community, this fellowship was different because they gave themselves entirely to God and to one another. They bound themselves to each other in committed care and service. They connected their well-being to the well-being of their neighbor. They said, if you're not flourishing, then I'm not flourishing. That's a radical claim. And so they practiced this holistic, emotional and spiritual and physical health and flourishing together as a community. In the Transform Life curriculum, you're actually going to see how you and your group can start to practice this together, how we create holistically deep people who know how to love God and love others really, really well. But here's maybe what's most radical about this new fellowship, how remarkably inclusive and diverse it was. These people came from all over the place, and they had very little in common when they arrived. They had all sorts of walls that divided them from one another. Language, custom, skin color, political ideology, gender, culture. But when they heard the message of Jesus, when they heard this sermon from Peter, they committed to a fellowship that tore down those walls. In spite of all the differences that they had when they arrived, they became unified in the shared love 
of Jesus. And the book of Acts continues on that trajectory. By Acts 13, you find out that there are African Christians, Asian Christians, Greek Christians, Roman Christians, Jewish Christians, slave Christians, free Christians, rich Christians, poor Christians, strong Christians, weak Christians, those with disabilities, they all came together. Christians were breaking down every wall that divided everyone else out there in the culture. It was amazing. It was an inclusivity and diversity, diversity that was enticingly different from the world around them. No one else practiced this. For example, in first century Judaism, they had a lot of different walls that divided a Jewish man from other people around them. It was actually a first century Jewish prayer that went like this. Thank you, God, for not making me like a Gentile. Wall. For not making me a slave. Wall. And for not making me a woman. Wall. They were great at wall building in first century Judaism, but it wasn't just Judaism either. The Roman culture did the same thing. In Roman culture, there was a common practice called child exposure. You can actually look this up. The patriarch of a family would take a, a newborn child, place it beneath his feet, and he would decide if they want to keep it or throw it out. We actually have evidence, record, of a Roman governor writing home to his wife who had just given birth to a baby girl, and he said, you need to throw her out because I don't want a girl. It was hard to be a child. It was hard to be a woman in the ancient world. And there's actually a famous quote from another Greek philosopher named Seneca that perhaps most blatantly expresses this reality. He says, We slaughter a fierce ox, we strangle a mad dog, we plunge the knife into sickly cattle, and children who are born weakly and deformed, we drown. It's hard to be a child. It's hard to have disabilities. There were walls dividing everyone from one another in the ancient world, and the Christian fellowship was enticingly different because they tore down those walls. And lest we think that we're much more advanced in our own inclusivity today, I challenge us to think about the walls that we build ourselves. What are the walls that we build in our hearts? What are the walls that we build in our world? Political walls? There's a recent study I saw I wanted to share with you guys. Both Republicans and Democrats were asked if they believed that people on the other side were reasonable, honest, Caring or humble? These are the percentages. Republican or Democrat, they never exceed 12%. What that's saying is that regardless of your political preference in our world right now, 90 to 95% of people say that the opposite side is unreasonable, dishonest, uncaring, and not humble. 90 to 95%, that's the world that we live in. We build dividing political walls from one another. It's gotten to the point where many of us don't feel like we can be in the same room with someone who votes differently than us. We have all sorts of walls. Ethnic walls, too. Friends, there were governmental practices that until the 90s in some states mandated that people of a certain skin color just couldn't buy homes in certain neighborhoods. Just weren't allowed. It seems like every couple weeks there's another video of another example of prejudice against a person of color. And Christians aren't free of this. There were multiple Christian universities that until the 2000s didn't allow for interracial marriage. We build dividing walls, ethnically. And perhaps more pervasive than anything else, instead of looking out there, maybe look in here, we build preference walls all the time, don't we? This one's really, really subtle, but we tend to only spend time with people we like or who like us. We create cliques in our workplaces, in our schools, in our churches. And we might be polite with people outside of those cliques, but we don't commit ourselves to them. We don't bind our well-being with their well-being. 
We don't covenant and commit to them. Friends, we have all sorts of dividing walls. It's human nature, but that's precisely what makes Christian fellowship different. Every single one of you came into this room with something that divides you from someone else here. And because you're here, and because you're surrounding the person of Jesus Christ and being shaped by the person of Jesus Christ, those walls are getting torn down. None of those things can divide you here. None of those things can divide you here. Christ says that those walls can't stand in him. Being part of a church means being part of a devoted fellowship that smashes the walls of division that exist in our world. There's a scholar named Esau Macaulay who writes about this in his book, Reading While Black. He says, God's vision for his people is not to form a colorblind uniformity of sanctified blandness, which is just an amazing sentence, by the way. It's not to form a colorblind uniformity of sanctified blandness. Instead, God sees the creation of a community of different cultures united by faith in his son as a manifestation of the expansive nature of his grace. And that expansiveness is unfulfilled unless the differences are seen and celebrated, not as ends unto themselves, but as particular manifestations of the power of the Spirit to bring forth the same holiness among different peoples and cultures for the glory of God. In short, friends, the fellowship of the church isn't vanilla ice cream. It's Neapolitan. We should never forget that. That's what makes this thing so enticingly different. But it doesn't stop there. The church is enticingly different, certainly because of its diverse and inclusive fellowship, but it's also enticingly different because of the way that they give themselves to one another and to others. Check out verse 44 and 45. All who believed were together and had all things in common. There's no exceptions there. All who believed, all things in common. And they would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. This diverse and unified community was enticingly unselfish in their giving. And that was entirely unlike the world around them. See, they weren't just giving away to people who looked or sounded or acted like them. They weren't just giving away to people who had earned it or people who were close to them. They were giving away simply because people had need. Didn't matter what you had done. Didn't matter where you came from. Christians made sure that you had your needs. If a Christian had two coats and you had none, they'd give you one. If a Christian had excess food and you had none, they'd give you out of their excess. And that sort of unselfish giving was radically different than the culture around them. It upset the hierarchies that had existed in society. People in power hated Christians for this very reason, because they loved all of the people that others were trying to squelch. There's a a great critic of uh, Christianity in the first few centuries. His name is Lucian of Samosata. He said this about Christians. He said, their founder, Jesus, taught them that they should be like brothers to one another. And therefore, they despise their own privacy and view their possessions as common property. He's saying that as a diss. He's saying that's a bad thing. Think how radical this was. There's another ruler, Emperor Julian of Rome, described Christians this way. He said, the impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. They're loving our people better than we're loving our people. How does that work? That practice of unselfish giving, it's rooted in two foundational theological claims for us as Christians. First, we believe that God is actually the one who's given us everything we need. Psalm 24 tells us that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, which means we are not owners of our things. We are managers of our things. 
God has given us everything we have. And so our job is to partner with God in managing those things to bring life and flourishing to all others. That's our purpose as humans. There's more than enough to go around. That's the second thing here, that God is abundantly generous and provides more than enough for us and others. And Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of this abundant generosity. And friends, we do violence to others and violence to God when we fail to give out of our excess so that others might have what they need. And again, before we start to think that we're so much more generous than Jesus' culture, let's remember what our world is constantly telling us. We might think, well, I'm really generous. What does our world constantly tell us? Well, consuming more is the way to life. Accumulating more is the way to life. We inhabit a hoarding culture where you need to create space for more of your stuff. Guys, the self-storage industry is worth $40 billion in the United States alone. You see what that's saying? Look at all of my excess. I need to get a new space for it so it can collect dust and not be used by anybody. There are people without chairs, without homes, without food, but I need another storage garage for all of my extra stuff. That's the world we live in. That's the world that we've been trained to live in, to hoard, to accumulate. You guys, there's more than enough to go around. The only reason every person on earth doesn't have what they need to live well is because other people aren't giving out of their excess. That's the only reason. The only reason there are needing people in our world is because there's greedy people in our world. God has given more than enough for everyone. I've had numerous conversations with friends who I think are really well-intentioned in their hearts, wondering why God allows things like poverty or hunger to exist. And I get the question, but friends, God gave us more than enough to make sure that everyone was fed, to make sure that everyone had a home. It's possible. It can happen. That's not God's fault. That's our fault. We have failed to partner with God in the way that we are made to. That's why it seems like there's not enough. That's why it seems like there's a scarcity. There's plenty. There's an abundance for us and for the rest of the world. And that's what makes the Christian community so enticingly different. Because whenever they show up, everyone around them gets what they need. When they show up, every need in the farthest reaches of the community is understood, named, and provided for. That breaks the molds of every other worldly structure. There's an early church theologian named John Chrysostom who put it this way. He said, this, this church, was an angelic commonwealth, not to call anything of theirs their own. Forthwith, what a word, right? Forthwith, the root of evils was cut out. None reproached, none envied, none grudged. No pride, no contempt was there. The poor man knew no shame, and the rich man no haughtiness. That sounds divine to me. And I think that opens an important note for each of us on giving to the church. We talk about it every week. Paige mentioned it earlier. But I think it's important when we see a passage like this to remember what giving is and isn't for the church. See, for many of us, we have a hesitancy to give to an institution because we've seen institutions abuse funding and authority all the time. And in many ways, it's wise to consider what I give to, where I give my time, my energy, my money. It's a wise thing to do. And that's why, like Paige mentioned, we are entirely transparent here at Midtown with every dollar that comes in and every dollar that goes out. If you want to know where Midtown's spending their time and money and energy, you can ask our elders and you can ask me. And we will provide a comprehensive spreadsheet for you if if that's your lane. You can know where everything's going. But deeper than that, friends, I think it's important to be clear on what the scriptures and Jesus tell us about giving to the church really is. See, our giving to and through the church is the foundational way that we participate 
in the work of God. That's why we do what we do. That's why we give to the church. We give to the church because we give for the world. That's the point. There's a foundational assumption embedded within this Acts text that the church exists primarily to serve the world as the vehicle of God's mission to the rest of the world. The church doesn't exist for its own sake. You don't give to just prop up an institution. You give so that that body of people can continue to give themselves away for others. That's what you're giving to. That's what the money is being used for. The church exists to give itself away to those in need. And so, as a reminder, you don't pay to come to church. And we don't give money to get religious services doled out as we see fit. We give to participate in what God is doing. And if you stick around Midtown for long enough, you're going to see a lot of examples of what God is doing. Our rent to use this space on a Sunday morning, every dollar of it goes directly to a ministry called Hope Women's Center that serves vulnerable women every day in this space. We literally don't exist as a church and don't have a space as a church without giving ourselves away. Our mission fund directly contributes to a day relief center at our South Scottsdale sister church. That day relief center serves neighbors experiencing homelessness every week. And this last year, 43% of the people they served got into housing. 43%. Our kids' ministry fund helps to extend the love and grace of Christ to families inside and outside the church on Sunday mornings here, but also through events like Trunk or Treat or Parents' Night Out. Sign up, parents, if you haven't yet. Our leadership team is meeting later this month to listen to the organizations and leaders in our community to learn from them, hey, what's going on? What's going really well? And what are the hard parts of your work in this community? And how can Midtown start to invest? How can Midtown start to give their time and money and energy to the things that you say are most pertinent. And I don't say those things to brag. I just say that's what we're doing. That's our goal as a church. We see this picture of Acts 2, and we want to give to all who have need. We don't want to consider our stuff our stuff. We want to manage it well in partnership with God. And by the way, it's not just about money either. We're talking about a community of thousands of people here. Right away, thousands of people. You think they might have needed some administrative skills, some organizational skills at this time to manage that money? Thousands of people, and yet everyone was taken care of. You need a lot more than just money. You need people who are committed holistically, using their gifts, using their talents, using their vocational spaces. That's required. It takes all of us, our time, our talents, and our treasures together to create a community like this. And so friends, whether or not you're currently giving to Midtown in any respect, whether that's with your time or your money, whatever, talk to God about it. Spend time with God this week and pray, hey, where might you be encouraging me to be a little more generous right now? Where might you be calling me to love my neighbors? Where might you be calling me to invest in the people around me? Because God is wooing you to partner with him, to bring life, to bring flourishing. It's happening. So this church, friends, it was enticingly different because of their diverse and inclusive fellowship. It was enticingly different because of the way that they sacrificially gave. It was unlike anything else around them. But it was also enticingly different because of the source of those things, the source of the fellowship and the source of the giving. See, many of us miss this in our culture because Christianity has been around for a long time. We think, well, I mean, we can be generous. We don't need to be Christian to be generous. right? We don't need to be Christian to forgive our enemies or love them well or extend forgiveness or practice radical generosity. And to be clear, no, you don't. It's a free country. You can be inconsistent if you'd like to. All of those things, all those ideals arose because of Christianity. They didn't come from anywhere else. We don't see anywhere else in the world landscape 
of cultures, of religions, of faiths that did this, that committed to this way of being. Another quote from Kenneth Scott Lazarus, this, uh, this historian I mentioned before. He said, more than any of its competitors, it attracted all races and classes. Christianity gloried in its appeal to Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian. The Greek and Roman philosophies never won the allegiances of the masses. They appealed primarily to the educated, to the morally and socially cultured. Christianity drew the lowly and unlettered multitude, and yet also developed a philosophy which commanded the respect of many of the learned. Christianity, too, was for both sexes, whereas at least two of its rivals were primarily for men. The church welcomed both rich and poor. No other group, therefore, took in so many groups and strata of society. And so here, the question must be raised, why did it first appear in Christianity? And then he says this. It's the uniqueness of Jesus, which seems the one tenable explanation. Without Jesus, Christianity would not have sprung into existence, and from him and beliefs about him came its main dynamic. You guys, there was no culture before Christianity that produced an ethic of loving your enemies and giving your life away for them. Never happened until Christ came around. There was no culture before Christianity that produced an ethic of universal human rights. Christianity broke down all of the dividing walls and it said every human, regardless of who they are, regardless of where they come from, is worthwhile and beloved by God. Never existed before Jesus and his community. There's never been another culture or faith that said God gave himself away for his enemies. Never been another culture or faith that said release all of your power and wealth so that others might flourish. There's a reason that every time the Christian really practices this way of living, every time the community practices this way of living, it upsets social hierarchies and prejudices. Everywhere Christians go, they upset what already exists because it's fundamentally different from those things. There's a reason that every time a nation or culture wants to squelch universal human rights, they get rid of the Christians first. You've got to get those people out, or at least dilute their faith so much that it no longer becomes Christianity. And so if we, in this room, want to become a radically diverse and inclusive community, we need to get close to Jesus, because that's the source. If we want to be a community of sacrificial love for all, we need to get close to Jesus. If we want to become a community of radical generosity in a hoarding world, we need to get close to Jesus. And if we want to become a community of service rather than power games, we need to get close to Jesus. The early Christian community didn't just sit around and say, hey guys, what if we were just nice? Let's just become the nicest people ever. That's not how this started. This started because these people had a connection to the transformative life and power of Jesus. It changed their lives and it changed the world. They believed in a radical story the divine reality put on flesh and showed us what it meant to really live, showed us what it meant to really be human. It was Jesus who gave himself away so that others would be saved. It was Jesus who became of no rep reputation so that anyone without reputation in the world might know they're beloved. It was Jesus who took on all the dividing walls so that none would exist in him. It was Jesus who took on the consequences of our selfishness so that we might receive forgiveness and new life. That's the source. And the church only became what it was because of its connection to that source. That's it. The church that appeals to us, all of those ideals that appeal to us, they started with Jesus. And so if you're enticed by this picture, inclusive fellowship, if you're enticed by this picture, radical unselfishness, giving yourself away for others, 
know that those things didn't just simply come up out of nowhere. They didn't come up out of human ingenuity or philosophy. It came from a person, from Jesus, and from the community that had encountered him, that had lived with him. And that same source is calling out to every single one of us right now. That warming in your heart that you feel when someone sacrificially loves another, when a dividing wall in the world is broken down, when people of all races and classes and creeds come together, that warming, that's Jesus. Beckoning each of us, every one of us, to orient our lives around that reality. So might we, at Midtown, become a community that fellowships like this, that gives like this? Might we be a community that taps into the source of those things? Because transformation awaits us, a transformed life. And the transformation of the world awaits us, friends. Let's pray.